The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, he is, as you might already know, one of our favorites here at the History of Literature, Franz Kafka, author of works like The Hunger Artist, The Trial, The Castle, and of course, The Metamorphosis. His fiction was unflinching in its portrayal of a quickly modernizing world and the nightmares of alienation and anxiety that such a world could produce. And so, we look to the life of Mr. Kafka to help us make sense of it all. He was Jewish and middle class, spending most of his life in Prague, living in the mild shadow of his mother, Julie, and the dark, imposing shadow of his father, Herman, who dominated him like an angry, noisy giant, leaving Franz to believe that his spirit had been broken and broken by his father. And yet, Kafka managed to carve out some space for himself, not in real life so much, perhaps, but in the world of literature— Miserable by day, soaring on the page at night, alone with his thoughts. Soaring in a shrieking, darting way, the way a bat fleeing from hell might be said to soar. Not all of his fiction was finished, and not all of his thoughts made it into his art. With our curiosity aroused and many questions left unanswered by the literature he left behind, we scan the scraps of his life, finding it, or at least a version of it, in his journals, the diaries he scrupulously kept, the diaries his friend Max Brode refused to burn. It is likely that these journals will be regarded as one of Kafka's major literary works, said the New Yorker. His life and personality were perfectly suited to the diary form, and in these pages he reveals what he customarily hid from the world. End quote. Ross Benjamin knows these pages intimately. He was the translator of a new edition put out by Shokin, which includes work appearing in English for the very first time. We talk to him today on the history of literature. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Franz Kafka and his diaries. What a treat. We will have his translator here soon and ask him all about the new edition, including his own relationship with Kafka and the work of being a translator, bringing us the news from the world of Kafka. Some new material available in English for the first time. A great little way to start our year. Happy New Year to us. Kafka fans. Speaking of Kafka and the new year, we've been doing a new series here at the History of Literature where we look at a slice of Kafka's life as presented in the book, Is That Kafka? Let's skip that today so we're not piling Kafka on top of Kafka. Instead, we'll give you a little appetizer. We'll do one of our My Last Book segments. As you may recall, we've been asking our guests to tell us what their last book would be. This is the last book they would ever read if given the choice. I myself have not yet made up my mind, so I ask away and hope to get some ideas. We talked to a guest who is on a similar search 
This is our old friend in Kathmandu, Nepal, the children's book author, Anuradha. We are joined by children's author Anuradha, who comes to us all the way from Kathmandu, Nepal. And she is the author of a book called The Story of Babur, Prince, Emperor, Sage, the Great Epic of Central Asia, which we are doing a full episode with her about. But I wanted to ask you this question, which comes from a listener who asked me, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written? The first thought that comes to me is, why such a morbid question? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm filled with anxiety right now. I mean, it's a very dark thought, isn't it? But but then it's also a great question in terms of, um, like, what would I like my last memory to be, you know, that would comfort me or give me pleasure during my last days on Earth, which I do not want to think about. Um I don't know. I mean, I've read books, but I don't think I've come across a book that I've already decided that this is going to be my last book if I ever had to, you know, read a last book. Yeah. Um, but it could be fiction, nonfiction. I mean, sometimes I feel like it could be something humorous to lift my spirits mm. or or something something more profound as, you know, just looking back at life more lovingly and yeah. And or a book that can answer um, questions of afterlife, because I, I believe that the soul, you know, stays even after the um, you, you're proven medically dead. So I would I would like to know what happens after life. Maybe that would comfort me and help me embrace my death more naturally and peacefully, which I doubt. But yeah, I think I. <laughs> but I I don't think anything would prepare me for death. But no, I haven't come across anything as such, and I've really not thought about it. And like I said, I'm filled with anxiety just thinking about my last book on Earth. Do you think that you need to be prepared mentally in order to make the right transition into the next phase of existence? Do you think a book would would need to, I don't know, spiritually prepare you or provide some peace or comfort or put you in the right frame of mind in some sense? Why not? I mean, yeah. books are a man's best friend, as they say. I mean, if books helped me during my childhood as I grew up and they were my soulmates uh, growing up and I found so many answers to my uh, problems in, in books and I found peace uh, in books and solace and, you know, answers to difficult questions in books. When I have done, found all of that all my life, why can it not help me make that transition? If I find the right book, I think it will definitely sort of help me in my last days as well. And I think it's important to uh, prepare for that transition as well in life. I mean, I feel you have to think about death just like you think about other aspects of your life and sort of prepare you shouldn't be running away from it it's something it's in it's going to happen 100 percent, and you cannot run away before it so i think if you're mentally prepared for it it's easier to embrace it easier said than done but, but it's yeah. it's not a book that comes to mind maybe it's not one that you've read yet no no but i'm, I'm I've, i hope i live long enough to find a book as such that can be my friend uh, during my last days 
until now, I'd, I I haven't found that book. Maybe I need to read more books. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or maybe maybe that's maybe you just need to search and maybe it will be the uh, the the search for the perfect book that will prolong your life. You won't be ready to leave until you've found it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. Or, or you never know. I mean, at this point in life, I think there is no book that I would like to read. But maybe when I reach that stage, I will remember one of the books that I've read until now and feel like, oh, I should read that again, you know, because sometimes um, depending on which phase in life you are and what age you are, the same book can have different meaning for you. And, you know, um, so you can reread a book and have a completely different perspective about the book. You know, I have talked to a lot of people who reach that kind of midlife point and they say, I've stopped reading and I only reread now, or I, I, I take more pleasure out of rereading books than I do out of reading books. Wow. I, I have that thought as well. I feel like the books that I read earlier in life, I just read them. But now I feel like it has to be reread to sort of look at life in a different way or just to look at the characters and the stories in a different way. Maybe also because I'm a writer myself, I want to go like delve deeper into my characters and the plots now, you know, than, than what I did before. It was just for pleasure earlier when I read books. But now I try and find meanings into, you know, the stories. You're, you're right. There's a couple of things that come to mind there. One is, you know, I I like to travel and I like to visit cities for the second time, because if you go, you know, the first time you go to Paris, you go to see the Eiffel Tower and you go to the Louvre and you do all these things that are kind of touristy and they maybe have long lines and big crowds and all of that. And the second time you feel this, you don't have to do that and you can just enjoy sitting in a cafe or you can enjoy just walking down the street and you you don't have that pressure. And maybe there's something to the rereading process that's a little bit like that. You can just take the book on its own terms and just be comfortable in it rather than trying to conquer it like it's something new. Definitely. When when I was little, my father used to get transferred every three to five years time, you know, to a different city. And I was I, I used to visit travel to all these new places as a child. And now that I've grown up, I make sure every time that I revisit that place, just like you said, um, to relive my childhood and also to sort of understand how that place helped shape me who I am. And I sometimes feel it as this travel thing has, you know, sort of helped me immensely in my writings as well. And that's why I put that into um, this book in The Barber as well, when he visits Herat to meet his cousins and it says that after that, travel and, and traveling is important and it changes a person from within. And I've put that part in the story as well, because I personally feel the same. Mm. And reading is like that, too. And I think that's why rereading gives us so much pleasure as we get older, that not only do you get to read a book and you get to read about that world, but you do get to remember who you were at a different time. And you remember, oh, yeah, I was so excited when I read this for the first time or, oh, I didn't I, I missed this because I was so young and foolish and hasty. I didn't really appreciate this character or I didn't appreciate this aspect of the book. And you kind of um, it's sort of nostalgia as well as the excitement of the new. And it's it's very uh, it, it really deepens the experience to be in a position to be able to reread. 
Yes, I completely agree with you. I think you've put that in a really perfect way. Yes, I feel the same. Well, okay. That was a very wonderful answer. I hope your last book does not come for many, many, <laughs> many decades to come. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> I'm just thinking why this question, but I, I, I really like the question. It made me think. I know, I know. I I still don't know how to answer exactly. I'm still searching for the answer. What is? Have you thought of the answer, like for yourself? I've tried. That's that's my. I I feel like I'm zeroing in on an answer, but I still don't know. the The question surprised me so much. I've been doing this for so long. I feel like I I had heard every possible question there was, and then this <laughs> listener surprised me with the question, and I felt like, oh no, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do with this. And so I, that's why I've been asking all of the guests to, uh, so I can hear their answers and see what makes sense to me. Yeah. You know, like now I'm, I'm worried now that is, this question is like sort of traumatized me now. If oh. I go like buy a book every time I'm going to be, yeah. like, this going to be my last book. Like once I read it, like die. then I'll let you know, Jack, I'll, I'll write to you. I'll tell you that I found the last book that I'm going to before I die. I'll share it with you when I find one. <laughs> okay. That's a deal. Anurada, thank you for joining me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Ah, the pleasure was all ours. Okay, that was Anurada. She's still searching, as am I. Are you searching, dear listener? Or do you have an answer to that question already? Have you ever thought about it? If you'd like to share your response with me, you could send me an email. Or you know what? You could send me an MP3 file. If you'd like me just to listen, maybe we could share it with our listeners here at the History of Literature. We'll see. Okay, so now... Here is our guest, Ross Benjamin, to tell us all about the diaries of Franz Kafka. He will join us after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Ross Benjamin, translator of an exciting new book called The Diaries of Franz Kafka, which, as we'll discuss, makes some new Kafka material available in English for the first time. Ross Benjamin, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks so much for having me. Do you remember the first time you read Kafka? 
Uh, yeah, very vividly, actually. Yeah, because mm. it was with a couple of, at the time, new friends in high school who probably qualifies my first literary friendships. Yeah. And we were reading to each other aloud. Oh, right. Which was probably, in retrospect, the ideal way to become acquainted with Kafka, I think, was reading to each other. Yeah. Was it the metamorphosis? No, we started with the trial in the castle oh, uh -huh. um, yep. from the high school library, and we would meet. I don't know if we were cutting class or if we had in-between classes, <laughs> meet in the library and read to each other from those books. Yeah. Yeah. And that was in English? Yep. Yeah. And the uh, weird... Yeah. Which is sort of old school. They were some of the earliest translators or maybe the first. Yeah. They were the they were the first of, of the major works, the major posthumous works. And yeah, the, and most of the stories, the most well-known stories. Now, did you know anything about Kafka's life when you were reading him for the first time? Or did you learn about that later? I think we were aware of some things. I'd say we, because I took an interest in him along with these two other guys. But we also had some misconceptions. Mm, you know, mm -hmm. um, We were already aware of some of the Kafka myth, I think, that has become conflated with his life. People may, in fact, now be better informed with new biographies and so on. But at the time, I think we may have had a sense of him as a more kind of isolated and monkish yeah. and alienated you know, figure than he actually was in in life, but end up his sort of officialdom in Prague as being, we probably mistook that aspect of his life or conflated it with the characters in his work or the way he describes bureaucracy in his work and yeah. didn't know his life. But I think I soon went deeper into his life because I did read the old translations of the diaries mm -hmm. and of letters and his sort of life documents right. all available in those translations. And I did read those pretty quickly Yeah, because um, the figure was kind of as attractive to me and the kind of literary, <laughs> you know, high school circle that I was in as as Kafka's writings were. Yeah, I think his life is really important in, in some ways in understanding his works. But I think you're right. The myth that's sort of been handed down is this guy who stayed up all night writing his literature and then was so alienated during the day. And I think people realize that he wasn't just living at home and that he was actually going out in the world and, and all of that, and he, that he worked. But they probably picture a, an office that was enormous, and he was the only one working at a lonely desk or something, or they miss that he had a lot of interactions that were not just strange and bizarre, but actually kind of more commonplace. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I really think I was under the impression for a long time that he was like a lowly clerk mm -hmm. in bureaucracy right. as opposed to a doctorate in law at a pretty high level in the insurance institute where he worked. And certainly he found his job or wrote about his job as being very stultifying. But he also wrote about his sense admiration for his boss. And yeah. obviously, he had friendships with his colleagues that he valued. And yeah, it was definitely not the picture that I think we had in the way that we had romanticized and mythologized him. And it kind of just filtered to us as maybe a kind of naive picture of a modernist literary genius. Right. Right. Um, okay. So before we get to the diaries, because I want to give you my theory on why I think his life is so important, I wanted to ask about his language and the German that he uses in in his fiction in works like The Metamorphosis or The Trial. How would you characterize his language or his diction that you find when you look at those works in the original language? Yeah, it is a good question. Just to distinguish between The Metamorphosis and The Trial, The Metamorphosis he cleaned up for publication and published in his lifetime. So there you oh, see right, kind of right. 
his style as he would have it presented to the public, whereas the trial is is derived from posthumous manuscripts that he didn't mean for public view. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's take the metamorphosis, because I think what you're asking is about what his language is like in the work that he... He polished um, up. Yeah, the fiction that he... Yeah. How did he want to write as a fiction writer? Some of the cliches that we might use to describe his writing, I think, are true, uh, that he wrote in a somewhat, um, let's say, very uh, sober, mm-hmm. and precise, and conscientious way, and, and stripped away, to some extent, the kind of everydayness of language, like uh, colloquialism, and to some extent, regionalism. But there, it, it is, in fact, the case that in all of his writing, he uses somewhat local vocabularies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't write in like what's called Prague German, per se, but he did use most of the Austrianisms that Austrian writers would probably use today. So it's very similar, probably, to the difference between UK and and, and American English, where you just have different words for the same things, mm-hmm. or sometimes misleading words like pavement and sidewalk, where they would seem to refer to very different things or related things. Like in German, a classic example in Kafka, that translators have gotten wrong is he uses the word kasten to mean wardrobe instead of box. It would be boxen. German German, and it's a wardrobe or a cabinet or a closet in Austrian German, and so would probably any Austrian writer writing today. So he didn't write in a kind of high German. Mm-hmm. He tried to write, I think, in a very immaculate German. Mm. That being said, though, there's there's a lyricism to his writing and its rhythms and assonances and alliterations. There are sort of crescendos. He has a variety of techniques. He doesn't use only one technique. Like his, what's, It's striking in his writing that he will write really complex nested sentences mm. with many, many subclauses. And because of the nature of German, you can start off the thought of a sentence and then go off on many digressions before you ever finish that thought because the verb can come at the end. I picture the... Uh, fuse lit in like a Looney Tunes cartoon. (laughs) Snakes around, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Around all these bends and twists, but until it finally detonates in a totally different place. Or, you know, it's often described as a wind up and a punch, you know. Mm -hmm. Those sentences may be striking, but he's also a master of brevity at times, Mm. you know. And we're talking about a story like a metamorphosis and the style of that, but he also wrote aphorisms and parables, Mm, very mm -hmm. short, that were self-contained and where the brevity can be pretty extreme and the sort of compression can be extreme. And he did did that with the kind of genius for for brevity that he has as well. So it's hard to characterize his style in in one way. And this is where I feel like knowing more about his life and some of his relationships and some of the seeing him on the inside, as we will get to when we start talking about the diaries, really helps to kind of understand, especially because if we are losing a little bit of that in the translation of his ability to give something a little twist or to keep us kind of guessing or under his control and then surprising us with something at the end, that's not necessarily something that comes through in his prose. I, I read a quote by Nabokov that said that Kafka inherited from Flaubert the tactic of using the language of law and science to convey a kind of ironic precision. I agree with Nabokov that it's there, but it seems like that's not necessarily something that would be a slam dunk for a translator to be able to capture. Right. The language of law and science in his work I'm not sure if Nabokov meant the the places where he's just outright parodying that sort of language. Mm-hmm. Or if he meant his style throughout his work, the kind of sobriety of it. Or yeah, the, that's how I uh, took it to mean. The sort of pseudo-rationality or the absurdist rationality of it. Mm-hmm. That's, 
He also played with that kind of language, right? He parodied that kind of language too. But Flaubert was a touchstone for Kafka. I think he listed in a letter at some point his the writers he called his Blutsverband and his his blood relatives, and Flaubert was among them. Mm. He was also very interested in writers' lives, so I think he took Flaubert's not only his approach to style, but also his approach to the writer's life mm. very much. To, and it may have even been part of the predicament of his life that he saw the devotion to perfecting his art as somehow incompatible with living a full life in a way that was that he saw in Flaubert. He read his letters, you know, he read writers' diaries and letters as much as he read their novels mm -hmm. and modeled himself in many ways on the writers he loved, including Flaubert. There's a thing about becoming invisible with Flaubert, mm -hmm. right? And Kafka makes that even more extreme, the sort of impersonality or anonymity of his narration. You know, he doesn't write in a kind of idiosyncratic voice of a, of a character or something like that. He's always writing in this seemingly disembodied, very, yeah, almost anonymous voice. Not how Flaubert writes, but I think he's almost taking to an extreme this concept of, of the author disappearing, uh, of his individuality or, yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with more about Kafka and we will get into his diaries. Okay, we're back with Ross Benjamin, translator of Kafka. Ross, we've been talking about the the sober tone and the almost invisible erase the narrator from the narration. Is that the tone you see in his diaries as well, or is the Kafka in his diaries looser or less guarded or more playful? Or who are you finding when you turn to his diaries? He is looser. I wouldn't describe him as as not being playful in his work. Right, um, right, yeah. I guess some of the vocabulary I used could could suggest that, but there's a lot of playfulness and humor. But it's kind of a it's kind of deadpan. It's deadpan, yeah. There's deadpan in the uh, style, in the actual imagery, or the sort of physicality of his descriptions. There can be a straight up slapstick, um, mm -hmm. sort of actors of the characters, or or the even what they're doing with their body. So that's that's why when my friends and I used to read it aloud, we would often end up laughing a lot. Yeah. Yeah. As for the diaries, what, what we were describing as the sort of impeccability of his language in those pieces that he tidied up for publication is not how he wrote in his notebooks. In his notebooks, he wrote in a really free-flowing way. He did make corrections in his notebooks. Like He still was uh, approached his writing in his diaries no differently than he approached any literary writing he was doing in that he was trying to improve it and perfect it, making corrections. But he wrote with a more spoken rhythm. He, he used a lot of contractions that you don't see anywhere in, in his published works. He, he tended to contract infinitives, which is something you do in German by dropping a, a vowel at the end. He quite frequently omits a ton of punctuation, mm. which uh, testifies also to a more spoken vocal kind of rhythm to the language in the diaries. Now, this is the same way he wrote his all of his manuscripts. I wouldn't distinguish the diaries from his other writing. And in fact, the diaries contain all types of writing, including drafts of fiction and the entirety mm -hmm. of, of the short story, The Judgment, for example, is drafted in the diaries, but is missing a lot of punctuation and other niceties. So it's the way he wrote when he, in the act of creation, probably everything he wrote, but in the diaries, you get to see it firsthand as opposed to in the published editions of his stories. There are now manuscript editions in German, and some of them, I believe, have been translated 
some of them I know have translated into English, of the manuscripts of the trial or of, of the novel that's been translated as uh, America, sometimes as the missing person, the man mm -hmm. who disappeared. There are versions that will present those closer to the manuscript with the missing punctuation or sentences that break off mid-sentence. Mm -hmm. so, so you get to see the looseness of his writing in progress. And then you also see his becoming as a writer in a way that you don't in any individual work because the diaries span the same period of time as any of the writing we have from Kafka, you know, 1909 to 1924. And so at the beginning of the diaries, he's not the same writer he is by the end. Before he writes the judgment, he's not the same writer he is after he writes the judgment. So he's experimenting with different styles and different approaches to writing in the diaries. And so you see those earlier versions of Kafka that can sound very different from the more sober, conscientious style we were talking about. What purpose did he have in writing the diaries? Is it like a writer's workshop kind of thing? Or, uh, I mean, people write diaries for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's to explore themselves or confess uh, relationship problems or uh, family problems or anything like that. Or sometimes some people keep diaries just to kind of mark their day and remember who they talked to and what they did and so on. Do you get a sense of what was motivating him to keep these diaries? I think he does almost everything you mentioned in the diaries, if not mm -hmm. everything you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I would characterize them overall as uh, having that workshop quality mm -hmm. that you mentioned. It's a place for him to do his writing. You know, he didn't call all of his manuscripts diaries. There are these notebooks and loose papers that are considered the diaries because that's what he tended to call them, even within the text of the diaries, so refer to what he's doing as diary writing. And in there, he's more likely to do the kind of self-exploration, self-examination, and plenty of, it's Kafka's of it, a lot of self-condemnation and self-accusation, mm -hmm. uh, self-format in the diaries. So all of that kind of self-conversation or inner dialogue, so to speak, with oneself. All of that happens in the diaries more than other manuscripts. But everything else that happens anywhere else in his archive happens in the diaries. You know, the drafting of short stories, he excerpts from his reading material. There's sections of the diaries that are notes that he's taking on books that he's reading, sometimes just jotting down the things he's reading, extracts from books. Mm -hmm. He drafts letters in the diaries, and there are entries that begin as diary entries, like conventional diary entries, describing something that's maybe happening simultaneously to the writing of it, and then transform into literary texts or diary entries that, if you just read them in the diaries, you would think it was a diary entry, but he actually published them in a literary journal, just changing some of the names in a couple sentences as prose pieces mm. in his lifetime. And so now they have this kind of double life. Right. Yeah. So famously, he wanted his friend, Max Brode, to destroy all of his unpublished works. When you read the diaries, I mean, it's one thing for Max Brode or for us, for anyone who's come afterwards, to take a draft of a short story or an essay or something like that and saying, no, this belongs to literature, this belongs to history, we, we should publish these. But it's another thing to take a diary if the diary is revealing something that maybe the author never wanted revealed or, you know, a, a deep and dark secret. When you're reading the diaries, does it feel like you're eavesdropping on something that's intensely private and Kafka really wouldn't have wanted anyone else to know? Or are they written more like a writer who is sitting down to write and maybe wouldn't mind sharing it with the world, except 
he just doesn't think it's going to be finished or complete and uh, it's not up to his standards but it's it's not something he's going into a, a really dark place in order to dig out of himself to the extent that i feel like i know kafka in any way from having spent i've spent eight years on this translation oh, uh having spent so much time with Kafka, I would suspect it's more the latter that mm-hmm. Kafka would have felt ashamed not of the self-revelation in the diary, which is not to say that there's not a lot of self-revelation. In fact, the ones Max Broad published, it seemed like Broad was protecting Kafka's mm-hmm. pride in that respect, while not respecting the thing that Kafka really wanted to to keep from the world, which was the unfinished nature of it and the unpolished mm-hmm. nature, of it, and it not be standards. My guess is his shame would have. I, I think he felt this way about things he published in his lifetime, including the Metamorphosis. There are diary entries where he says he shouldn't have published it because uh, it never was the story it was meant to be because he had to go on on a business trip when he was in the middle of writing it and the interruption cost him the uh, initial inspiration and the story ended up imperfect and. I think he was ambivalent about the things he published or ashamed even of those for not being up to his standards. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them, not the judgment, um, but but many of the other things he, he published um, or he or he wishes and desires to take back things that he's given to his publisher um, that are going to press. So I think he wouldn't have worried as much about the things that Broad actually censored, the sexual stuff or the homoerotic stuff. This is purely speculation on my part. Yeah. But on everything I've seen, I think what would have devastated him was the world seeing his his unfinished, imperfect writing that wasn't up to those probably impossible standards. Yeah. So let's talk about Broad and and what he did both to the content and the language, because basically my understanding is our versions that we have in English have followed the Broad's uh, version, which left a lot of things on the cutting room floor. And in German, they've been available in a fuller edition, and your new edition draws from that. So we get more of the things that Broad took out. So what exactly did he remove, and what did he do to the language? So just to fill in a little bit of the history, Broad was just as involved in the publication of the English edition of the diaries as he was in the German edition. And in fact, the German edition came out after the English edition. Mm. So he had the manuscripts of the diaries in a vault, I believe. And he prepared a transcript of them that more resembles the edition I translated because it was a direct transcription of Kafka's handwriting. And which I saw when I visited Shokin Books, who publishes my translation. They had published the original 1948-49 translation and had published the German edition. Um, It was all under that same publisher. And they had a box of Max Brod's transcription of the diaries and it looks just visually on the page like the critical edition that came out in 1990 that's based on the handwriting because the way Kafka wrote his diary entries is he often wrote this uh, horizontal stroke between the entries or even if they were fragmentary or just half a sentence or whatever then there would be a horizontal line and he would go on to the next thing Mm. and these transcriptions that Broad had made look like that And then what he did was he created his own edition in German that would be the basis for the English translation. Uh, Did he correct errors and add punctuation and kind of clean it up when he was preparing it for publication? Yeah, so he tidied up the text, but he also completely reordered the material to make it appear chronological because what Kafka left behind was were 12 notebooks and some bundles of loose papers. And those were the materials that constituted his diaries, but he didn't keep them chronologically. He would grab different notebooks at different times and mm. continue writing in an earlier notebook years later. 
and he didn't date all of the entries. And so Broad's chronology is probably roughly correct, but he had to make decisions about where to put material that wasn't clearly dated. Then he excised uh, literary texts that had been published elsewhere, Mm -hmm. the entire draft of The Judgment, uh, the short story, The Stoker, which is also the first chapter of the novel that's been published as America, The Missing Person, etc., is written in two parts, actually out of chronological order, because he wrote the uh, second part in a notebook that he had begun earlier uh, than the one in which he started the first part. But it's just completely left out of Broad's edition in its rough draft form. And uh, some smaller literary texts are left out, even ones that weren't published in his lifetime, but which Broad published elsewhere as stories and slapped a title on. So a lot of that literary work is is left out. And then he, people who were still living at the time in 1948-49, when that edition was published, Broad disguised their names with initials and sometimes disguised personal details about them. And then he sent just certain passages that he must have thought either reflected badly on on Kafka or even on himself or on other people in Kafka's life. And those were, it was sort of his judgment that those things reflected badly. When you look at some of them now, you don't quite see it. He obviously was, had a special sensitivity to homoerotic lines and passages in the diaries and, and seemed to want to take out a lot of those. And then a number of sexual passages that I guess crossed some kind of line into lewdness in his perception. And there it becomes a matter of sort of psychoanalyzing Broad because he also left in a lot of sexual stuff. He left in some visits to brothels and disguised others. He left in a bunch of Kafka's observations about a brothel, but then cut one line that maybe seemed a little more carnal or lewd, you know? Yeah, Um, yeah. Kind of literary and transfigured and poetic maybe to him. Uh, So those are interesting to speculate about why he left it out. Yeah, because as you say, you'd either want all of it or none of it, but to get only part of it, you are getting, it tells you more about Max Brode and his views than about Kafka's. But does it also change the Kafka that we get? Does it make him more of this monk-like person who kind of came down to us as the myth? Does it take away some of the warmth or some of, uh, I guess, for like a low style as well as a high style? In a way, he kind of disembodies Kafka more. Or mm, mm-hmm. I think Broad, to the extent that you can see a kind of agenda underlying these editorial interventions, I think it had to do with his dedication to a kind of saintly image of, of Kafka that he was pushing, you know, also in his in his biography of Kafka and in his kind of stewardship of the Kafka myth that has been handed down to us. I think he was uh, attempting to render him more pure, more of, of a um, unearthly kind of literary prophet and saint. And so a lot of the things he left out, I think, were things that are actually, from our contemporary point of view, more, more humanizing, you know? Mm-hmm. And that includes the technical imperfections of the text, uh, at least in my view, that there's a kind of correspondence between his sanding off the rough edges of the text itself and his sanding off the rough edges of, or what he saw as the rough edges of, of Kafka the person. Yeah. Yeah. Did your eight years on this project change the way you understood and appreciated Kafka's fiction, the the more finished works? Yeah, I think so. It kind of destabilized the status of the more finished works and the less finished works for me or that distinction, mm, you know? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. For example, a lot of the works that are in his first collection of prose contemplation are diary entries that have been trimmed down or distilled or sometimes just published wholesale with the names changed to initials in contemplation. And 
I have trouble now seeing the end product as all too distinct in its status from the from the rough draft. I see the kind of continuity of his writing. So th- I guess there are sort of two schools. There's a school that sort of divides Kafka's writing into, there was a scholar named Gerhard Neumann who, who articulated this distinction between Schrift, the, the writing, and the Werk, the work, which was, you know, mm. the finished work in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. And, and then the other school would say Kafka spent his whole life writing one long unfinished manuscript. Yeah, you see, you know, little pieces of the trial all over the notebooks. You know, little pieces like, oh, that seems like it must have been destined for the trial, but it's it could also just be its own self-contained text, or it was, or maybe it's even diaristic. You know, um, there, there's this whole section of his of the critical edition just called the Nachlas, the the posthumous papers. You know, which is just a massive. Of text, much like the diaries. And as much as I do, of course, see the differences in, in what he polished for publication and what he left in rough draft form and, and never actually wanted exposed to public scrutiny, my sense of him as a writer now is of someone who's just actively producing the sort of material we see in the posthumous papers yeah. and, now, and being able to crystallize some of it, take it out and publish it, but usually reluctantly and with some ambivalence. So that his real genius was in this act of, of ongoing creation, a sort of fluid, mm-hmm. almost goalless writing. It's almost like Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks, where he had a hard time finishing a lot of works, but there's genius in his sketches and his drawings and his quick ideas and his thoughts. And you kind of go through those and you can find a lot of gold in there. It's not just, you know, it's not like everything is just a rough draft, but it's actually that can be where some of the best ideas are. Yeah, and for long passages, he'll be going at it with a story that's going on for pages and then just breaks off. And it's incredible material and it just remains unfinished. But, you know, given his ambivalence about the things he did publish in his lifetime, I think most people feel grateful that we got what we did get of the papers, whatever Broad's betrayal of his wishes was, um, mm. and the complexity of that decision. His genius to me is really evident in the in the fullness of, w- of what we have of these materials. And seeing that fullness, instead of having it curated and distorted by a heavy-handed editorial intervention, I think makes me all the more appreciative of that genius. And it's the sort of exploration and experimentation that, he, that was just a, a constant in his work. And that is almost a, a contradiction in his work because of the way he circles the same predicaments again and again and in his kind of self-scrutiny. But in his writing, he's just constantly imaginatively elaborating in new ways his ideas and, and visions. Mm. He did write at night and he did write on a, on a threshold between between waking and dreaming as much as that belongs to the myth that's he was an insomniac writer who was definitely taking advantage of, of a kind of dream work. And you see that in the notebooks. And he was always just writing on whatever paper or notebooks he could grab and trying to differentiate what was diaries, what were aphorisms. And even within the diaries themselves, there'll be a notebook where you can see he started the notebook to try to impose some order on this and just include fiction in this notebook. So the first like four entries will be rough drafts of fiction, and then suddenly he'll be off adding back in all the other diaristic elements. Well, we are lucky now to have a freer version of Kafka. The book is called The Diaries of Franz Kafka, translated by Ross Benjamin and published by Shokin, which continues its streak of, I think, the coolest covers in publishing. I wish I had a poster of the Kafka books they've come out with. They're so clever and eye-catching, no pun intended. Ross Benjamin, thank you for joining me on The History of Literature. Thank you so much. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Honorata for giving us her last book, 
She has not reached out with an answer, by the way, but sometimes the search is all, isn't it? Life is not a destination. It is a road. A road with lots of ditches along the side. And of course, my thanks to Ross Benjamin. Do check out his book, The Diaries of Franz Kafka. Available now in a wonderful edition by Shokin Press. We have some good episodes coming up, people. Auden is next, I think, and then Goethe, and then a giant of a book, a whale of a book, you might say, and then a pair of women, 119th, 120th, and then another pair of women in the same episode, both 20th, and then another woman, a poet. This this is getting a little too cryptic, isn't it? (laughs) I guess you have to take my word for it, and I'll probably scrap it all and talk about Schopenhauer or maybe Catullus. It is winter, after all, but hey... I like clouds, I like weather, I like all that because I like being on this planet. Even if I spend so much time indoors, they put me on a prescription strength vitamin D tablet. I'm better now, thankfully, feeling fit as, what do you say? Well, maybe not a fiddle. Maybe a a lesser instrument, a musical comb. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.